0: Okay, let's get started with our panel. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Please continue to enjoy your lunch, but in order to have time for the panelists to make their presentations and uh, get everything back on schedule, I'm going to go ahead and start. Um, I'm David McIntosh, uh, partner at Mayor Brown. I'll be the moderator for today's panel on uh, net neutrality and the future of that issue. Um, I want to give you a little bit of background. As you know, in the 109th Congress, there was a large, long effort to bring telecom deregulation bills forward. Towards the end of that effort last year, the issue of net neutrality um, surfaced as the major stumbling block for that deregulatory effort. Um, In the House, there were amendments to bring net neutrality as part of the bill that were defeated. In the Senate, um, it was still being negotiated and and incrementally different versions of net neutrality were included in the bill that Senator Stevens had worked in his Commerce Committee. Um, Now, although last I heard was Senator Stevens still held out some hope that in this lame duck session uh, there might be a compromise and a bill passed, most people feel that that is very unlikely and that the issue will be returning once again in the 110th Congress, only this time with very different committee leadership. Um, Chairman John Dingell, whom I served with, um, is going to be chairman of the Commerce Committee. Ed Markey, who is a big proponent of net neutrality, will chair the telecommunications subcommittee in the House. Um, In the Senate, uh, Senator Inouye will take over chairing the Commerce Committee. Uh, His staff, has indicated there, want to take a look at net neutrality in a serious way. There will also be changes, I think, ultimately, as a result of last Tuesday's elections on uh, the way issues are decided in other areas of government. The FCC has been called upon by Congress to delay the merger, the AT&T-Bell South merger. Um, Let's hope that politics doesn't get taken up by that agency in deciding those more economic questions. Um, the Congress has indicated, uh, Chairman Dingell, that he, he thinks the 96 Act is outdated and does want to bring forth some type of telecom act, um, but it won't be the same as it was in the 109th Congress. Um, and there's, he has plans to modify the Universal Service Fund and look at media ownership. One thing that I wanted to mention at the outset is that the term net neutrality has different meanings to different people. Um, there's the minimalist approach, as, as I call it, that says, essentially, there should be a limit on an Internet service provider that stops them from prohibiting any of their subscribers from posting or delivering an email or tra- visiting any site on the web. You add to that uh, provisions from the Markey Bill that say, in addition to, to not denying access, that providers... Are prohibited from favoring or discriminating against internet traffic. Um, you've got Commissioner Tate's sort of working definition that what they want to add to the AT&T merger is a prohibition on AT&T from charging websites for delivering their content to internet users. And as my friend James Catuso at the Heritage Foundation has pointed out, that really what's at stake is when whether or not an internet provider can prioritize different bits of information that, as messages and websites are broken down as they travel through the Internet, can you create a priority for those and charge a fee for faster delivery? Um, In the end, there are many folks, Randy May, who I've worked with, mentions this all the time, that wonder if you bring net neutrality in as a policy, how do you avoid then taking the next step to treating internet providers as common carriers and with that the concomitant rate regulation. But those are questions that our panelists will address and educate us on. Um, I'm gonna read you a brief little bio on each of them and then let them talk in the order that uh, that I'll introduce them. Our first panel is former Attorney General William Barr. Bill is currently the Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Verizon. Um, where he heads the Legal, Regulatory and Government Affairs Group. Prior to that, he was with Bell Atlantic and GTE. He's also practiced uh, law at Shaw Pittman and had served at the Justice Department, both in the first Bush administration, ultimately as Attorney General, and then served in the Reagan administration in the White House. Our second speaker is uh, Paul Meisner. Paul is both an engineer, having gotten his engineering degree from Princeton, and a lawyer graduating from George Mason. He is currently Amazon.com's vice president for global public policy, and he's responsible for formulating and representing the company's public policy positions worldwide. We're glad that he's here joining us today on this debate. At an earlier point in his life, he was also a practicing attorney at Wiley, Ryan & Fielding. Our final speaker will be Professor Christopher Yu. Uh, Professor Yu has been as no stranger to Federalist Society conferences. He is currently a professor of law and director of the telecommunic technology and entertainment law program at Vanderbilt University, although he informed me that he is um, now planning to move to the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Vanderbilt's loss will be Pennsylvania's gain. Um, he h- has done a lot of work in this area, in particular in his book, uh, Networks in Telecommunications, Economics and the Law. So I will now turn it over to the panels. I've asked each of them to speak for about eight minutes, and then we'll open it up for questions. Bill, thank you.
1: Thank you
2: very much, Dave. It's a pleasure to uh, be on this panel this afternoon uh, with uh, my distinguished co-panelists. I know it's entitled The Battle of the Titans, but when I considered uh, Google's uh, market cap, I felt the only way I qualified as a titan was my personal girth. (laughs) You know, it's no accident that the uh, broadband revolution was launched on deregulated networks. Uh, It started within the last decade with the cable companies investing over $100 billion to convert their broadcast pipes into two-way broadband pipes. And for a while, cable really uh, dominated the field initially the first few years because phone companies were subject to, a regulatory regime that required phone companies to share the lines uh, and uh, to uh, uh, sell their services at regulated rates. Now, it was precisely when those rules were lifted that phone companies uh, started making substantial investment. Investment soared in broadband. DSL deployment has sharply ramped up since deregulation, uh, and DSL is now gaining share on cable modem. Uh, Now the phone companies are moving uh, to the next generation of broadband. Verizon is spending $18 billion over the next 10 years, or until 2010, uh, to deploy our fiber-to-the-premise system to 18 million customers. AT&T is spending $4.6 billion over the next three years to deploy fiber-to-the-node to 19 million homes. Wireless companies are, meanwhile, investing in their wireless networks to deploy 3G broadband technology. Verizon has spent $3 billion so far to reach 200 million uh, uh, people uh, by the end of uh, this year. Uh, That means that with a simple wireless card, a laptop can get Internet access at speeds up to 2 megabits per second. Fixed wireless has now become a viable broadband alternative. WiMAX reportedly will allow speeds up to 155 megabits per second over a, a radius, a range of 30 miles. Clear Clearwire Intel uh, is now offering WiMAX in 30 cities and expanding. Tower Stream is offering WiMAX in six metropolitan areas. In August, Sprint announced that by the end of 2008, It will spend $3 billion to build a nationwide WiMAX network to provide customers access uh, to the Internet at 2 to 4 megabits per second speed. Several hundred U.S. municipalities are in the process of installing citywide Wi-Fi networks. Already 65 municipalities have such networks. The three satellite companies are continuing to invest in substantially uh, improving Uh, their nationwide broadband offerings, and report subscribership rapidly increasing. Recent technology advances have now made broadband over power lines a feasible access alternative, and Google-backed current technology is rolling out BPL in Texas and Ohio. Current speeds are up to 3 megabits per second. The bottom line is that we have underway probably the largest infrastructure deployment in recent history. Verizon alone, over the last two years, has become the number one capital spender in the country. Unlike most historic infrastructure projects, however, of this scale, these builders are not being granted exclusive franchises and promised relatively safe returns. They are rolling out their networks in fiercely competitive markets, and markets that are subject to extraordinary technological risk. When Verizon puts fiber down a street at the cost of about $850 per home passed, we do not know whether any customer on that street is gonna sign up for our service. And when we drop a line to the house at roughly $1,000 per home, we have no idea whether that customer is going to be picked off by cable, Ymax, or some other competitor. Again, it's no accident that these investments are being made in a deregulated environment because companies aren't going to make these kinds of investments unless they see an opportunity to earn a return that's commensurate with the risk. And only if they have the freedom to innovate, Differentiate and make commercially sensible decisions that they need to compete and win in the market. Enter stage left the net neutrality advocates. The basic claim is that the internet access over the last mile is really a duopoly with cable and phone companies controlling it, having a chokehold on it, and that they have such market power that they're going to be able to leverage this power in a way that harms competition at the content and application level of the market. And their prescription is for a set of ex-ante comprehensive blanket rules governing the way business is transacted on the Internet. It is comprehensive regulatory scheme. Now, the claim is frequently made in the public debate or tasked in public as if what we're going to do, that is what the last mile providers are going to do, is to block or interfere with the content that people are reaching over the public internet. Discriminate or block against Yahoo or eBay or Amazon. But that's not really what the debate is about. We've made clear that consumers should be able to reach any lawful website that they want to get to with the capacity that they're buying, with the access service they're buying. And we do not and will not block, degrade, or interfere with the consumer's access to those websites. Indeed, one of the reasons we're making the investments we are is precisely to enhance the experience and the range of services that our end users can get over the public Internet. The real issue is this, broadband pipes not only enhance what people can get over the public internet, but they also make possible new kinds of priority delivery services, quality of service capabilities, and functionalities that by definition cannot be accommodated on the public internet. And the question is whether we're going to be able to build the infrastructure and to develop these new functionalities and capabilities and offer them to businesses, offer these new services to businesses, so they can in turn offer to end users new services that otherwise would not be available at all. So for example, if Johns Hopkins Hospital wanted to develop and deploy a home monitoring network by which it could monitor very sick patients at home and provide certain medical services remotely right to the patient's home, why shouldn't we be able, working with Johns Hopkins, to deploy that kind of network, a network that would involve very high degrees uh, of quality of service, security, and reliability, end-to-end management of that traffic? Now, the so-called net neutrality advocates say that if a network owner wants to provide a new enhanced service, they should only be able to charge downstream to the end user. They should not be able to charge upstream at all, so that a company that wanted to provide these new services shouldn't be paying for it, shouldn't be working to help the, the, uh, the uh, network company build this new service. Now, some say that, well, if the network provider is going to provide new enhanced service to upstream, to some content or applications provider, and do it for a fee, then it has to provide the identical service to all comers on exactly the same economic terms. Some also say that if the network owner must be Uh, say that the network owner must be prohibited from providing itself any functionality or capability that it doesn't make available to all comers on the same terms. Now these non-discrimination models require, as they always have, intense regulatory oversight of all the physical and economic terms of transactions, determinations of who is similarly situated, what kind of business are equivalent, what kinds of terms are equivalent, what, kind, what, what different portions of deals can be carried over to another deal. But more importantly also, they are ultimately driven toward, regula- toward regulated prices, tariff rates set by regulators. Now, obviously in our system, the presumption is against regulation. The burden is on those seeking regulation to show that, in fact, there is a market failure that is causing harm to competition, and moreover, that the regulation will actually improve things, not make things worse. The threshold problem with the broadband regulation argument is the harm that they are positing, the leveraging of market power to harm competition at the content level simply does not exist in the real marketplace. Let's get real, there is no phone company or cable company that has market power to injure competition among content and applications providers. And the suggestion that this is a duopoly is a gross uh, exaggeration or misrepresentation. The broadband market is fiercely competitive today and its its trajectory is to become even more competitive. Consumers have multiple choices of access providers and choices are rapidly expanding. 81% of zip codes have more than three three or more choices, 53% of zip codes have five or more choices, and 21% have 10 or more choices. Broadband prices clearly do not reflect market power. On the contrary, they have been trending downward very sharply, and speeds have been increasing. DSL prices have fallen nearly 30% in three years and and by nearly 50% at any given speed, and cable modem prices have decreased 70% in three years on a megabits-per-second basis. Moreover, advocates of regulation are engaged in a sleight of hand here as to what the relevant market is. The question is not the range of choices available to the end user because that reflects, obviously, the power of the last-mile provider over the end user. But the broadband regulation argument hinges on the power of the last mile provider over the upstream content market, and that is a national market. Whatever Verizon's share today in a particular city may be, it only has 12% nationally. And because of this fractured structure of the industry, no last mile provider has power over the national market for distribution of content and applications. Moreover, last-mile providers, such as the telco and the cable companies, don't have the incentive uh, to to limit the experience of their end users on the public Internet. Indeed, it's the very functionality that that we're selling, the ability to reach Internet websites. And we are selling access. That's our primary business. And our interest, obviously, is to increase the value of what we're selling by maximizing the content that is available to the end user. It shouldn't surprise anyone given the lack of power and the lack of incentive that in fact, the history is clear. Advocates, advocates cannot point to any of the harms that they are concerned about as actually having materialized in the marketplace. The one poultry poster child that they wheel out uh, really shows the vacuousness of the claim. In 2005, a small rural telco with 190,000 lines blocked um, Vonage VoIP from terminating on their system. And they did so because Vonage VoIP was not paying access charges. And this was not an effort to discriminate. This was a legal dispute as to the legal status of VoIP. And it is still a question that is being contested and has not been finally resolved. And that is, does VoIP traffic have to pay terminating access charges the way other long-distance companies do? In any event, the FCC told them to stop and find them, and it stopped. That's not a predicate for the kind of massive regulation that's being called for. In short, the broadband market is characterized by multiple competitors, falling prices, increasing transmission speeds, new investments, and vibrant innovation, all characteristics of a marketplace that is not in need of Intervention by regulators. Now, the, a fundamental problem with this, these this ex-ante regulations that are being proposed is that, as Chris Yu has pointed out, it's addressed to the wrong problem. The premise of net neutrality regulation is that our policies have to be targeted to force fostering competition at the content level, but that already is highly competitive and likely to remain so. If however, as they suggest, the problem is concentration or scarcity at the network level, then the policy imperative should be to broaden the availability of network capacity and network capabilities by promoting investment in multiple diverse networks. If the problem is too few networks, the solution is more networks. Even if your ultimate concern is the content level, Uh, of of the marketplace, then it is still the imperative in the the first instance to give priority toward policies geared toward encouraging the deployment of diverse (coughs) networks, because no one writes applications if there are no networks to support them. And each time a network owner invests and innovates to create a new network capacity and function, he's enabling a whole spectrum of content and applications where none existed before. The fallacy of the regulation approach is that it posits that the problem is network scarcity, but instead of addressing that problem, it assumes that enduring network scarcity is a given and proceeds to prescribe a regulatory scheme that focuses on carving up network resources to all comers, uh, Enter uh, either for free uh, or at regulated rates. The problem, of course, is that these very regulations deter the building of new networks by severely constraining the ability of network owners to innovate, differentiate, and earn an adequate return. And this ends up in locking scarcity into place and in ultimately profoundly stunting the market for content and applications it's critical to understand that today's network infrastructure will not support the rich array of content and applications that are on the drawing boards and the problem isn't just capacity on the last mile or capacity on the backbone it goes to the very network functionality of the public internet the real constraint to applications right now are the limitations that have been built into the public internet On the public, the public internet operates by rules that no set of bits can be given priority over any other set of bits. Bits are bits. It also operates under the regime that the level of service that you can provide is best efforts. I only take as a network owner the best efforts to deliver bits from here to here. It does not allow for quality of service on the internet. And this precludes many types of content and applications. Now, this doesn't mean that the the Internet is going to be superseded. On the contrary, it's going to remain the primary delivery vehicle for most of the kinds of consumer content and applications we're familiar with. And that's exactly why we're investing in making the backbone more robust and making the last mile robust. But it does mean that if we're going to expand the universe of applications, we're have to 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 promote the diversification of networks, networks that allow prioritization, networks that allow a range of quality of service, networks that are optimized for particular kinds of content and applications. And the regulatory regime that's being promoted does the opposite, it deters investments and it threatens the ability to recoup investment and deprives a network owner of the freedom to compete. Take, for example, the Top that network providers should not be able to charge upstream providers for new and enhanced services. This is intuitively and obviously wrong. If we do something with, with, with Johns Hopkins Hospital, why should only the patients pay? The infrastructure and new functionality we're building makes markets. These markets are two-sided markets. There are times when customers want to pay to reach the business, the businesses, and there are times that the businesses want to pay to reach the customers. Take the market for express delivery, FedEx, UPS. There are times when consumers are willing to pay for express delivery. Uh, For example, if I need a book from Amazon overnight. But there are also times where the sender is willing to pay for express delivery. As for example, where a law firm has to get a brief to a court immediately. So the idea that only customers Uh, should be able to pay for delivery, forecloses large avenues of efficient activity, and eliminates key revenue sources for network providers to recover their investment. Content providers may be willing to cover some of the expenses of improved delivery services and to help make a market for their services. For example, a gaming company. Right now, one of the great inhibitions in the development of the gaming is the lack of priority services. Ultimately, what the, the, the uh, nirvana for gaming is to have virtually no latency in the system. So when I make a, a, a move uh, on one side of the earth, it's instantaneous, almost instantaneously or perceptibly in instantaneous on the other. That requires a very robust network with very high degree of quality of service and prioritization. That cannot be done right now over the public Internet. But you could see a gaming company wanting to enter into a transaction with a network company to provide just that kind of capability. For example, perhaps when the when the user accesses a game and wants to play it, a burst of capacity is made available uh, on that site from, from the gaming company to allow that to happen. There's no reason why these kinds of arrangements shouldn't be allowed to take place. This improves competition uh, on the network level, and it improves competition at the content level. Now, some proponents of internet regulation concede, "Okay, well, you know those kinds of things. You should be able to to charge upstream for for these, but you can't discriminate. And if you provide it for anybody, you have to provide the same thing for everybody on the same terms." Now, that kind of requirement is is unnecessary and harmful. First, because network providers have incentives to maximize uh, the diversity of content and applications over their networks, uh, and as, as I've described. Uh, But once you've acknowledged that a network provider can negotiate a commercial arrangement upstream with a content provider that wants to reach the customer, what is the reason for not allowing those very same market forces uh, to uh, govern the transactions of the second, the third, the fourth, and so on? The problem with non-discrimination requirements is the certainty of regulatory failure. Enforcing non-discrimination obligations require the regulator to determine which providers are similarly situated. Take, for example, this Johns Hopkins situation. Another company comes along and says, well, on part of that network, on the last mile, the Johns Hopkins traffic was given this certain kind of prioritization and there's certain characteristics that it had. I want exactly the same thing, I'm Victoria's Secret, I want the same thing in the last mile. What they're doing is picking out part of the transaction and they're trying to ha- determine is, you know, what, is the, what exactly is the service, what are the terms, it requires the regulator to, to try to extract that from the overall deal that was made because that last mile traffic wasn't, wasn't the only part of the deal with, with Johns Hopkins. But I'm afraid there's one other thing at, at, at issue here, which is if their premise, which it is, is that this is not a competitive market and we need these rates and we need these regulators because it's a bottleneck, are they really going to be satisfied with a commercial rate, a real market rate? Or, as in every case in telecommunications till now, will the regulator be determining what a truly competitive rate is? And how this is going to be done in a competitive market is beyond me. The regulators have shown that they cannot do this, and this will end up in undercompensation of the network companies. The bottom line is that network companies don't take the kinds of risk and make the massive kinds of investment that are going on today in order to let regulators set regulated rates for their return. If a problem arises, there are rules in place that are sufficient to deal with them. The FCC has said that it has broad authority over this market, and it's waiting in the wings and stands ready to come in if it sees any abuses or anti-competitive conduct. And that's the way it should be. Until actual harm arises that can be looked at in context, look the efficiencies of it, whether it harms competition, whether there's market power, there is no reason to impose ex-ante a broad set of rules that locks in concrete, how the internet and how commercial relationships on the internet should proceed. Thanks.
0: Our next speaker has an internet presentation which we have to see if our technology experts will get up for us. Not an, Oh, I, I'm sorry. I'm being corrected. It's not an Internet correction. It's hardwired.
1: By the way, Amazon.com is uh, incredibly flattered to be considered a Titan these days. <laughs> don't anybody say bubble, right? <laughs> Before I begin, thank you very much, Bill. That was a a great introduction to uh, your uh, views of this debate, and you also have given me an opportunity to speak a lot slower than I had planned. Um, So I I am from Amazon.com, and the remarks today really do represent only Amazon's views on this. Uh, There are other companies we've worked with uh, over time who may not agree with everything here, and I hope there's enough substance here that that may show that we're a little bit closer than perhaps – is imagined um, but i want to be really specific and with some trepidation i'm starting out a, a, a presentation to a bunch of lawyers with uh, an engineering diagram um, <laughs> but uh, i think it'll be very helpful and it's it's important because the engineering here really is at the core of the policy um, and so let's uh, quick start with how the internet works um, uh, but this is the outline of what i want to talk about poll is fundamental uh, the net ops do get paid in part one uh talk about what net neutrality is in our view, uh, and really describe sort of in the meat of this how this is a disagreement on the facts, not so much on the, uh, the slogans or the philosophy. Uh, and lastly, some more discussion of how the net ops get paid, and hopefully this is a place where uh, Bill and I perhaps can uh, um, narrow the, uh, the chasm. Our first poll is fundamental. Well, this is a very simplified network diagram. Um, And uh, you'll see over here, this is the home user uh, who in his or her home has a subscription with a broadband network provider like Verizon. Verizon then is interconnected to the internet backbone. On the other end of the cloud, uh, which may be in Seattle, it may be uh, local, uh, is a a service provider, a a content provider online like Amazon, like Yahoo, like YouTube, uh, and they are connected through agreements with a business ISP. Well, how does the uh, content That is provided or made available by the service provider brought to the home user? Well, it's very simple. There's something called um, the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, which governs how communications are made on the web. And there's a command called get. And so when you type in a URL up in the top line of your browser and hit return, or when you click on a link uh, on a web page, it actually sends what is called a get command. And the get command is destined to a particular server, in fact, it's destined to a particular file on that server. And so when the, when the page comes up and you see it, all that is is a file. And you've gone and you've sent a get command to have that file sent to you. It's actually called a, a resource. You've certainly seen this before, the uniform resource locator, the URL. Uh, that's the resource it means. It really means just content, be it the web page, be it a video, uh, an image, text, whatever. But, but the important policy point is here is that the resource, that is the content, only gets into the Verizon or the Comcast network if the home user who is paid for the access has asked for it. This is unlike every other medium in history where it was decided by the publisher, the broadcaster, uh, the writer, the author, what gets sent out to the consumers. Here, the consumer chooses... If if no consumer ever chooses the particular content at the other side of the web, that content never gets into the Verizon network. Interesting, huh? Okay. So how do NetGov get paid? Well, this is really basic stuff. Um, Right now, they are paid. Uh, There's a network operator uh, on the consumer side who gets paid by the consumer. And I put a delta there because It is not a fixed rate necessarily. It's it's been priced that way in some markets, but you even see the differences in prices between DSL and cable modem access, which is explainable largely by the different speeds that they provide. Uh, DSL is cheaper because it's slower in most markets. Uh, Likewise, the other ISP, which may or may not be one of the the major residential ISPs on the other end gets paid by the business and it's also a Delta. Amazon pays a lot more for access than Joe's bookstore.com uh, the, the desire by the residential broadband network operators is to introduce a second way to charge, and that is to sort of reach through the web and be able to get money for uh, capacity, for content trans- transiting their networks, um, uh, and they wanted to charge the, uh, the source of that content, even though the, the, uh, the source of that content didn't put it into the network, it was just made available and pulled by the user who's already paying for it. So, that's the... Uh, not the end of the diagrams. We will get back to those in a second. But uh, uh, net neutrality—the way we look at it—and it's really funny. I've heard this so many times: um, how no one knows what net neutrality means. Everyone disagrees on it. Uh, you know that must mean it's amorphous and can't be regulated or can't be legislated. Well, that's true of everything, right? What is the war on terror? What is health care? What is anything of any number of the much more complicated things that Congress and the FCC deal with? Um, net neutrality is actually relatively simple uh, compared to the, the big issues that the Senate and the House hit every day. Um, so net neutrality, well, the core idea here um, is non-discrimination based on the source or ownership of the content. And I've underlined those two words because, you know notice it doesn't say the kind of content or the timing of content or the particular um, uh, technical needs of the content, but rather the source or the ownership. So if, um, if AT&T wanted to prioritize all Internet video over all Internet data files, Fine, that makes perfect sense. That's a rational network management decision. Uh, but, but to choose among the providers puts the, um, the network operator in the position of deciding for consumers which content gets favored over other content. I've heard the Johns Hopkins example before, and I'm a big fan of that particular institution, but um, the fact of the matter is you don't want to have a circumstance where the network operator cuts a special deal with Johns Hopkins that it doesn't allow to be cut with the Mayo Clinic. Otherwise, Verizon steps into the position of being the HMO for all of its customers. You don't want that. You don't want Verizon HMO. <laughs> <laughs> so, what Net neutrality really is about preserving the openness of the internet. It has been great for consumers and for innovation. Um, and I, I want to make draw a distinction here because none of us, or well, probably few of us in this room are great fans of the 96 Act. Um, And uh, I have a lot of, uh, share a lot of sympathy with with Bill on that particular point. Um, But the 96 Act was about busting up market power. It was trying to dismantle the market power of the telephone companies. This is not what we're seeking to do. We acknowledge that they have market power. We say that that's okay for them to have market power so long as the market power over the network is not extended to market power over content in ways that have never been done before. And so we're not seeking to bust them up Just prevent them from extending the market power that's extended. So, the disagreements. All right, so this is kind of just a bunch of slogans that I'm going to put up in the next few minutes. And um, believe me, uh, my side of the debate has been uh, guilty of sloganeering also. Um, And uh, I get that. And I'm trying to uh, distinguish our particular, uh, Amazon's particular viewpoints from everything else by being very specific about what we mean. Um, But so let's go walk through a couple of these. Uh, First, Uh, content shouldn't fill the pipes for free. We're all, or perhaps some of you are familiar with some of the uh, con- uh, comments made by the leadership of network operators who say that they don't want their pipes being used by companies like Amazon for free. Um, well, we agree, right? The content, as we learned on the very first couple of slides, enters the pipe only when the paying customers go and get it. We're not pushing it out there. We're not We're not a, a cable content provider that is pushing it out to that set-top box and filling up their pipes, the network operator's pipes. The only reason our content gets there is when their paying customers ask for it. Well, next, let the competitive free market work. Well, I'm a free market guy too. I I completely agree. Let the competitive free market work. The problem is there isn't competition. And uh, with all due respect to Bill, um, it is not a competitive market at all. Uh, Over 98% of residential broadband access is provided either by the phone company or the cable company. These other nascent technologies he discussed are are interesting and they're going to be great at some point, hopefully, Uh, but they're nowhere near being um, uh, relevant players in the market. Um, uh, In fact, I think I remember. Oh, Bill talked a little bit about the um, the zip codes. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is, people don't buy their broadband internet access for a zip code; they buy it for a house. And while there may be many providers within a particular zip code, the individual house, the individual consumer, only has either the cable pipe or the phone pipe, at least uh, 98 plus percent of them, if you uh, believe the FCC. Um, So what's another slogan that we see a lot? Oh, we shouldn't start regulating the internet. Well, uh, you know, I agree, I'm I'm for that. But uh, the fact of the matter is the non-discrimination rules governed most of consumer internet access. In fact, by far most and arguably all Uh, because cable was uh, it was not clear for a while but when the commission started to look at its reclassifying broadband access by far the vast majority of internet access was under these non-discrimination rules so these are historic rules this isn't a new thing this would be largely a re- reinstatement and we can um, debate about whether it actually applied to cable but that's not important because the vast majority of consumer access was dial-up at the time um, network investments are good for consumers totally agree I totally agree but this not that's not to say that the network operators would um suffer under a non-discrimination rule in fact in the year preceding the commission's decision to uh, reclassify that is to deregulate broadband internet access uh, the network operators applied uh 60 percent more lines in just that one year they were investing heavily even though the non-discrimination rules applied. and in fact if you if you subtract cable from that equation you just talk about the ones that were. Uh, undeniably regulated, that is the telco providers, it's well over 200% more lines in the year before the commission acted to deregulate. They don't need to discriminate to invest. Video competition is good for consumers, totally agree. I get that and uh, it's, it's, a, it's an important thing for consumers. But how ironic it would be if uh, for the sake of getting one more video provider, we cut off access to hundreds or thousands of other ones. Um, I, I have to say that the the, uh, the network uh, the net neutrality legislation is really part of a much bigger telecom reform bill that you're probably aware of. Um, I'll show you just for scale. Uh, this is the original network neutrality Snow Dorgan bill that we put in. So it's a standalone. This would survive by itself as legislation. This uh, even thinner. Uh, it's really essentially two pages. Uh, Bill was the amendment proposed to the Bay Telecom Act that would accomplish what we want in net neutrality. This is this, on the other hand, is the Telecom Act that uh, that Bill's uh, company supports. Uh, this is the light regulation, uh, the light regulatory touch, the light legislation that he's in favor of. But it's this very heavy <laughs> legislation that he fears. Um, and interestingly, um, there's another slogan that's out, that's out there which says, Common carriage is bad for consumers, as if somehow net neutrality equated to common carriage. Well, it's simply not true. Uh, it, it's non discrimination is not all of common carriage. There's a lot of bad stuff that used to apply to Verizon that shouldn't apply anymore. I get that. But this huge bill, interestingly enough, in many places relies on non discrimination rules. I've, these, these little yellow tabs here are all the places where non discrimination is in the act running in the favor of the network operators. They want non-discrimination in law so long as it runs in their favor. So, this leaves me to the fun part, back to network diagrams. Uh, The network operators should be paid for their service. I totally agree, this makes perfect sense economically out of fairness and for getting a a bigger, stronger internet out there. So let's talk about this a little bit more detail. It's a kind of a big diagram, I apologize for that, but you'll get used to it in a second because just just a few things will change as we move through it. Basically what you got over there on the far left upper corner, you've got two uh, content providers, call them Yahoo and Google or Amazon and Google, whoever you want it to be. On the right, there's a neighborhood um, and the network operator, the broadband residential internet uh, access provider, be it Verizon or Comcast or AT&T is circled there in that kind of gross orange. And those little boxes represent functional elements of their network. They could be servers, they could be cards, they could even be uh, cache, that is to say memory, uh, within a a server card. But those are functional elements. Um, The point is that when user A in his or her home gets some content from OSP1, the red line going through the network, it should in no way interfere with user B's ability to get content from OSP2, the blue line going through there. Um, If user A wants high speed or some extra service provided by OSP1, that's fine. And you know, OSP1 ought to be able to pay for that so long as it never hurts OSP2's ability to serve the the second home user there, and basically the blue line. So let's walk through, that's the basic model. This is how it exists today. There it is again without that ugly line. Um, And by the way, of course, obviously the money is paid. The home user is paying, both the users are paying Verizon or Comcast, and then the uh, online service providers are paying uh, for internet access at their end uh, of the cloud. Um, Here's something that's done today, commonly. Uh, It's called edge serving. I don't know if you've ever gone to CNN, and if you watch as the page is loading, you'll see up there in the URL line, something comes up, it looks like Akamai. Well, Akamai is a company that provides servers web servers at the edge of the network the concept is is by distributing content around the country to, in the high population areas CNN servers in Atlanta don't get hit every time somebody in New York Detroit or Los Angeles looks for uh, the home page the latest news most likely it's going to hit an Akamai server that's located in one of those cities or right around those cities this is this goes on today and if Verizon wants to get into this business more power to them that's great they can do this This is an example of how the OSPs can pay the residential network operator, like Verizon, more money for enhanced services. But you'll know what it doesn't do. It doesn't in any way interfere with home user B, the guy in blue, his ability to get stuff from OSP-1. It's still, when it gets to that circled little router or device there, there's no discrimination there. This happens today, so this is fine. Here's another thing that happens today. Uh, Verizon can sell, the OSP can sell Amazon or Google or whomever else, a private line that skirts the, the bulk of the network. It can skirt the cloud entirely, it can sk- skirt the local network. This is another example of how Verizon can and does sell services to the content <coughs> providers who then pay for enhanced service because it doesn't have to go through all these little uh, these bumps along the way. But again, when it gets to that circled device, there's no discrimination. So a lot has been said about uh, quality of service and how uh, advocates of network neutrality say that we should not allow the network operators to uh, provide uh, quality of service based on the source or ownership of the content. Um, I'm one of these funny ones who actually disagrees that I think it would be okay for quality of service to be sold by the network operators. But there's a catch um, and I'll, I'll describe this, but here's how it works. This private network here doesn't interfere with the other traffic around there. How would you do that with quality of service? When somebody, when when Bill talked about prioritization, he says we're not gonna block anything, but we're gonna prioritize some stuff that we wanna be paid to prioritize. Well, you can't pay for useful prioritization unless everybody else suffers degradation, right? If, if if, If all the seats in an airplane were first class, no one would pay extra for them, right? So the very fact of the matter is that you pay to get priority to get better than everybody else otherwise no one would pay for it, why would you? Well, that's fine except for, that's not how it works here. How it works here is you're actually going around the network, you're getting better service but not at the expense of these guys. It's not actually hurting them. And the only reason is because that's a new capacity. That line, that, go, that red line around the network, that's new. It didn't exist before. So you're not subtracting away from the OSP2s, the blue guys line, you're actually adding something in. So the same thing can be done for quality of service within the network, here, here's how. Why doesn't Verizon offer something new inside the network? Remember that little box. That can be a new router. It can be a new card. It could be better software. But what it doesn't do, it, what, it does, what it does do, is it pro- provides priority, a faster service, better speed for OSP one, the red guy, uh, and it gets through faster to home user A down there. But what it doesn't do, it doesn't in any way affect user two or OSP two rather and at home user B, the blue guy, because it's new capacity. So quality of service paid for by the OSP, by Amazon, by Google, uh, in new capacity within the network, seems to me is fine. Why shouldn't it be? Just like a private network. Likewise, if they wanted to do something called like the the turbo button, I mean, Bell South has uh, experimented a little bit with this, but the concept is is that the home user pays a little bit more to get a a boost in speed. Well, that's fine so long as it's at, in new capacity. Because if it's not new capacity, every time the guy down here hits turbo, user B's uh, content gets screwed up, just gets slowed down somehow, uh, and that's not fair. So the, the concept here is, um, and that I'm positing this is, a, is possibly a middle ground for discussion, is that um, quality of service in new capacity uh, ought to be acceptable under, um, under net neutrality rules, but if it's in the existing capacity, that is where it hurts other uh, consumers' ability to get at other content on the web, um, uh, that's a problem. I'm going to spend just two minutes, if I may, on uh, answering a couple of Bill's points. Um, and uh, first of all, he said that falling prices are an indication of competition. Well, no, not necessarily, right? Uh, firms try to uh, price at the profit maximizing point and because they've priced too high, they can still come down to a, a, a profit maximization point or closer to them, at least firms with market power can, uh, and still be dropping their prices. So. Um, It's actually suggested, the data suggests that that's probably what's going on here. Uh, What is something about 85% or so of homes are passed by residential broadband internet access, 85%, and about 40%, that's probably forgiving, take it. So there's a huge gap of people who could get it, but don't. The reason why, the vast majority of them say it's too expensive. Well, I think right now prices are falling in part because they view it, uh, the ability to pick up more consumers even if their subscription pr- uh, profits from existing consumers decrease slightly it, it gets them again to the price profit maximizing uh, point a lot has been made that DSL is cheaper than cable well it's in many respects it's a different service as I mentioned before it's, it's slower so you want to pay less for it that makes perfect sense that's uh, buying by quantity um, but this, this business about applauding the 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 slight drop in prices for broadband internet access, as being evidenced as competition, uh, uh, it strikes me as more or less like a, you know, I'm telling the policeman who's pulled you over. You're going in a 25 mile an hour zone. You're going 65, and you, you get pulled over and you say to the policeman, "Well, last week I was doing 75. You should be happy." Um, the point is, we're not even near the competitive price, and it's because we've got this uh, very uh, powerful duopoly for the time being. Uh, one last thing. I'm I am, you know, I'll be quiet. In a- as we get up here, but I I do believe it is based on facts, the the disagreement between us, and I think if we really look hard and decide what the facts actually are, and I'm trying to base mine on published sources like the FCC, um, uh, we'll get closer to a solution. And because, as Bill uh, acknowledged, that much of our argument, the, net neutra- the pro-net neutrality folks' argument, is rests on competition. We at Amazon believe that when there is a demonstrable level of competition, some sufficient level, and we can argue about what that is, but that would be the end of such rules. There would be no need for the regulation when a truly competitive market is in place. Um, I, th- I think there are others perhaps in town who believe this should last in perpetuity. I don't. Amazon doesn't. And so um, I hope we can at some point uh, uh, sit down and agree on the facts and the the possibilities like this uh, uh, way of uh, providing uh, quality of service in new capacity um, and, and hopefully get beyond just the slogans. Thanks very much.
3: Well, thank you very much, and it's a, it's a privilege to be here and to speak with at the Fellow Society Convention, and it's a privilege to be here with uh, both with Paul Meisner and with Bill Barr. I don't know whether to thank Bill for uh, citing my work so heavily or uh, curse him for stripping away so much of the content of my talk. Given the lateness of the hour, I will go for the, uh, the latter and do both. So, what would I say? Um, I would say that what we're seeing as part of the debate is really inevitable. I mean, what we're really seeing... I mean, let's step back from 37,000 feet and try to figure out what's really going on. The Internet has gone through a revolution in the last... since the mid-90s. What began as a device for academics to send email and to share text files with one another has exploded into a mass market phenomenon. This is partly with the drop of the commercialization guidelines from when the NSF ran it, and, in fact, a, a much broader diffusion and the move, the privatization of the backbone, all of that tied in. What does it mean? We have a lot more users using the Internet in a lot more different ways. And in fact, they are much more intense ways in terms of the the bandwidth they demand. It's much more variable in terms of the loads they put on the network. And also, they're much more different in their level of sensitivity they are to delay. I mean, things like VOIP, the International Telecommunications Union Standard, says a delay of 0.3 seconds renders that service unusable. An email doesn't show up for 0.3 seconds late, you hardly even notice it. All of a sudden we have all applications that require guaranteed delivery times that didn't exist before. Streaming media, gaming, all these high bandwidth, high uh, uh, latency intolerant applications are the new world. It is only natural that networks will evolve to meet these new demands. And in fact, what we're going to see is we have a world in which we all use this one protocol called TCP IP which technologists now tell us is a 30-year-old technology that has become obsolete it routes on a first-come first-served basis and in fact if you talk to the, the leading minds at Carnegie Mellon and MIT they say you know what this fight as typical what they tell us typical of lawyers you get to the fight after it, and you start picking up the cudgel after it no longer makes any sense And in fact, I think that we're on the cusp of making a very good, possibly a very big policy mistake, because why? Um, Before, we could get away with a single protocol and routing traffic in one way. We can't do that anymore. Second, if we regulate and standardize it through regulation in a particular way, we will lock it into place. Under the best of circumstances, it takes six months for a good regulator to fix it just from the inevitabilities of the Administrative Procedure Act. In fact, the the administrative process is prone to a lot of biases, a lot of different problems, uh, access problems and so on and so forth that are likely to lead to a much different solution than that. Uh, Not only that, networks need to be able to manage the traffic in a way they didn't before. If uh, the most natural thing, if you have an application that's very sensitive to delay and email which is insensitive to delay, one solution is to build lots and lots of more pipes. Another solution is to give a higher priority to the traffic that's sensitive to delay. And it's a very natural uh, reach to start to look to new techniques of network management which didn't, weren't used before. I can go on and on about this. I can give some more examples about this. The Akamai example is an excellent one. There's a lot of others. But it's natural to see this happen. And the last thing I'd say is pricing is going to become more complex. Um, We have all-you-can-eat pricing at the user level. You pay one fee, and you can use all the bits you want. Uh, From an economic standpoint, that's irrational because you're imposing congestion costs on the network, and you're not bearing any incremental price for it. You're going to overconsume. And it's natural that we're going to see that diversify. Flip side, if you charge everyone one price, the low-volume users have to cross-subsidize the high-volume users because you're only using a little bandwidth. They're using a lot. You're all paying the same price. It's going to be the average. The same thing's true on the content side. Some are sending, the bloggers are sending out text. Text is cheap, text is low bandwidth, it's very easy to get out. Some people are sending out streaming video, very intensive use of the network. If you charge them all the same, all of a sudden you're demanding the bloggers to pay for capacity and network capabilities that they're simply not using. Not least of which also this is, as, as General Barr points out, a two-sided market. If you say that we can't vary the amount that we can charge content and user uh, content providers and application providers, but we can vary it, the, the amount the consumers are going to pay, guess what happens? The consumers are the only ones who can fund fiber to the curb. And what we should expect to see is a two-sided market developed where you have variable pricing, much more complex pricing on both sides. And that's a natural thing of what we're seeing. Um, the other problem, I'll, I'll just touch on this briefly, um, that General Barb was nice enough to pick up out of my work, which is that I think the debate is focusing on fundamentally focusing on the wrong policy problem. Um, but what we've learned from economics is that any vertical chain of uh, distribution and uh, production is uh, fully effi- only a fully efficient if each level of production is competitive. What does that mean the policy problem should be? Identify the level of production that is most concentrated and the most protected by barriers to entry and focus policy on fixing that problem. The current debate focuses on maintaining competition, the competitiveness of content and applications. And that's the segment that's, as General Barris pointed out, that's already the most competitive, the least protected by barriers to entry and the most guaranteed to stay that way. The problem is we need to be focusing on the central part that is the most concentrated. Backbone, relatively competitive last mile is where the issue is so the question is how do we stimulate that and we can move into the familiar arguments which we all know out of the nineteen ninety six act which is uh... that providing access to the existing network might have been a legitimate solution when entry was infeasible if you can't get another network allocate the network you get today you have today we're not in that world anymore At this point we're in a world where dynamic efficiency matters as much as static efficiency and creating incentives to invest in networks are critical um, if you want one short uh, snippet on this, the Brand X decision made it fairly clear that guaranteed access to the internet isn't going to be the case anymore. And we found out three months later when the FCC classified not only uh, cable modem service but DSLs as information service that that was going to be the case. Immediately after that decision, uh, Disney, IBM, Intel started pouring money into to broadband over power line and wireless internet into new internet broadband technologies. And Google promised to build a broadband network for San Francisco for free. They're not giving that away. I mean, this is, this is, but faced with the alternative being cut off to the pipe that exists, they are now entering into strategic alliances and providing the financing for those new alternatives that are really the solution to the policy. Uh, to step back from vertical integration theory again, this really is the battle of the titans. Assuming that we can disaggregate content and conduit, I have in my home in Nashville, Tennessee, two options, a cable modem and DSL suppose we disaggregated content and made a pure common carriage world I still only have two options broadband and DSL and they're gonna charge me as much as I can and the amount that they charge me is, d- is dictated by my lack of bargaining power by my lack of alternatives so I don't expect this to change the amount that I pay one whit what it will change is the bargaining power about between network owners and content providers about how they divide up what they extract from me in that sense they're looking this is the battle of the titans they are looking for as I understand business people should do, ways to protect their shareholders and their business models, but to me that ultimately is not a policy problem. That is a problem that's going to be happening at the level of business that we should stay out of. Uh, Lastly, it will commodify networks. One of the things that's really interesting to me is allowing different networks to pursue different networking strategies allows them to compete on more than price and network size, which is all you can do if everyone runs the same network. Uh, The Reader's Digest version of this is, I could see a world in which one network runs the way it does today, doing web pages and email. Another prioritized VOIP traffic to appeal. This is the boutique solution. In a a Walmart world, a specialty store survives by targeting high-value consumers, consumers who value a particular product highly, and creating their network to solve them. Serve the VOIP consumers by giving their traffic priority, and another people who are interested in e-commerce increasing security. It could work in a very interesting way. Now, what's interesting, though, is you get to this point, you'd like to say, "Okay, then let's get the government out of this completely. Um, You actually, as a purely theoretical matter, can state examples why vertical integration can cause economic problems. Uh, this is why the, the Chicago school moved towards per se legality of vertical integration never took hold because you can state these very narrow, fact-specific examples. And so the recommendation I end up with is a little bit different from General Barr's. It's actually what I call a network diversity approach where you forego ex ante regulation and you allow ex-post case-by-case analysis for those limited situations. Now I can emphasize that it would be very limited. You have to satisfy certain prerequisites of market power in the, in the two markets and barriers to entry that would be much more limited. Um, and the examples that I give, it doesn't lead you to a general network neutrality rule. In other words, uh, Verizon has no reason to, com- to does not have an, uh, an auction site. It won't discriminate against eBay. Now, They only have an incentive to discriminate with services that they compete with. For example, they might discriminate against VOIP. But in that world, you don't have a general network neutrality rule. You have a tailored one that looks at the scope of the precise problems. And in fact, this gives uh, allowing to only regulate when you have demonstrated harm to competition will give technology and economics the breathing room that it needs to survive and to move forward. And in fact, this makes a nice fit with the whole debate between per se legality and rule of reason and antitrust. And in fact, it takes the limitations of government into account. That seems ways that are very attractive to me. Um, We're running short on time. I'll leave it at that.
0: Thank you, Professor Yu. Thank you. Um, We'll take a few questions. We'll maybe let ourselves run over about five minutes. Um, While people are lining up, let me do a little bit of advertising for the Federalist Society. Um, Ray Giffords, who's here, stand up, Ray, so people see you. He chairs our telecom working group. So anybody who wants to be sort of permanently involved in these issues, please see Ray sign up, and they have uh, put forth a lot of materials over the last couple of years. Thank you. If you could state your name and your question, sir. Uh, Howard Lim from the New York State Conservative Party.
4: Uh, as, as the issue was being discussed, it, it occurred to me that an analogy is the global cell phone market. There are many countries in the world that have more advanced cell phone systems than we have, and many of them have an entirely different payment system. Uh, as many of us who have traveled around the world were shocked to discover, the United States somehow found itself in a system in which both the callers and the owners of the call phone being received both pay for the uh, uh, service, whereas in other parts of the world, uh, the person receiving the call doesn't pay at all, more uh, along the lines of your normal home phone, as, whereas the person placing the call pays for the cell phone call. And I think this is another example in which the uh, service providers are trying to get paid in both directions, uh, whereas we know that it's possible and it's economically feasible for you to be paid in only one direction. My question, particularly to Mr. Yu and Mr. Barr, is none of you directly addressed the example that's constantly being thrown out that in a... uh, Pay if you put a large burden on the pipeline model. A little startup, uh, a dormitory room, uh, garage startup like YouTube would have never come into existence, and would have stifled innovation in the internet. Uh, address that issue, please. Um,
3: the cell phone example to start off there is a great one. Um, there, I did some work on the Korean cell phone market. And in fact, there was a high-quality incumbent that sold sort of highly reliable service, a low price, low, a lot of dropped call. Competitor tried to come in, and in fact, they took a different positioning. They appealed to students and people who were very, who could tolerate drop calls and pay, and were price sensitive. Korea regulated the amount of existence. I mean, that's the kind of competition I'd like to see. In terms of the innovators, um, I think there's a tremendous romance of the garage innovator. And in fact, uh, that was possible at one point in the Internet. Part of the death of the garage innovator is the maturation of the industry. I mean, it's just not the same industry of where people used to build cars in their garages, too. My statement would be a little bit different. People who are providing services... Now And people who are about to launch services have a tremendous investment in the Internet as it exists today, and they want to keep it that way. There are innovators out there who need an Internet that needs, has different functions, that provides them something different. They can't even get them even if they're willing to pay for it. It's the FedEx example. Without FedEx, I can't get my letter there overnight even if I'm willing to pay 20 bucks for it what you can find is that some of these innovators will devise new systems that really depend on a different functionality of the Internet. And, in fact, the kind of changes we're talking about make that possible for them to pay for it in ways that they couldn't even do, if they were, but for the allowing different networks to pursue different strategies.
2: <clears throat> yeah, I'd like to <clears throat> address an aspect of that. Let's take a look at Google. Okay, Google has a business model that it's evolved over time. At one point, it actually paid for customers by paying AOL to, have, to, have preferential, to be the preferential search vehicle on AOL. So that's a provider paying to get customers. Now, it's developed a very strong search engine, and it has built up a tremendous network by giving it away, and then it gets other applications and gives them away. So it's now giving things downstream and charging only upstream. But one of the problems for Google has been that they don't like the current internet. They don't like the speed of the internet. They don't like they'd rather have some other set of rules and so forth on the internet for their own traffic. They can afford to bypass it. So they they have built a bypass network that brings the traffic down to our last mile pipe. They don't go they don't go over that cloud. They build it. Other companies that can afford it go to Akamai. They get around the internet. Now how about a small company? this garage guy you're talking about, they have a good search engine. They want to compete with Google. What do they do? Google's giving away their search engine. How do they compete with Google? One way for them to compete with Google is to come to the network company and say, Google's paying to to bypass the Internet. By the way, this push-pull stuff, I think, is nonsense. Google is paying to reach customers. That's push. That's push. Okay? Google's paying to reach customers. The little guy comes to us and says, can you give me a quality of service network prioritization, all the bells and whistles that I can't get on the Internet so I can compete with Google? That's how the little guy competes. The little guy competes exactly that way. That's an efficient arrangement. It increases competition among networks. It increases competition on the content side of things.
1: We are happy to walk away from net neutrality when the number of broadband Internet access providers equals the number of current search engines.
2: Well, let's you know, talk about search engines. We have quite a network's effect going on with, with Google's search engine. They're gaining market share. That's why you know, their market cap is twice as what Verizon's market cap is. And in fact, their market share is going, and the cost of search uh, uh, on their engine is, is going up. So I would think they have very substantial market power. And you can just ask yourself the question. If Verizon said, Google can't come in over our pipes, who would win that fight?
3: Who would document. win
2: that fight? Do you think we'd be selling? Uh, we'd be selling more access? No. Now, you know, I'm sorry. You have a question.
5: <laughs>
0: yeah. Let, let's make the question. this the last yeah, one. Yeah, give,
5: give and take. Well, I actually have one. Just to be fair, I, I, I have one for Paul. And in a way, I wish that uh, although uh, Professor Yous has struck a middle ground of sorts, uh, uh, maybe Larry Lessig could have, you know, been up there to help you. Since I'm about to attack, uh, <laughs> and that is that. Uh, I think that your demonstration or, or, or your idea about the diminishment of anybody else's experience is, is semantic uh, in the discussion, that, that when you analogize it to, uh, to airplane seats, inevitably, if uh, air, air uh, companies try and maximize uh, their offerings by having first-class seats, they may choose to shrink the legroom in, in tourist class. And, I mean, it's just not the kind of thing – that, that I think, and, and, unless there's a showing uh, uh, that, uh, you know, some certain level is a health risk, and, uh, in other words, unless that risk is shown, the, the, you don't have a right to a certain experience on the Internet. You can, you can debate whether you want to keep that up, and that's a statement rather than a question, and I apologize uh, for the format, but uh, can you respond to that idea?
1: Sure. When the, when the number of broadband Internet access providers to residential consumers equals the number of airlines, I'll walk away from net neutrality it goes to competition if an airline wants to abuse its passengers that's fine it will lose customers because customers have a choice they have a choice the same day the same time the same cities etc in the broadband access market you have a choice of two at best and that's for the foreseeable future when we get to a point where consumers can choose even especially on a day-by-day basis bill mentioned fedex well amazon can choose to ship things faster using fedex if it wants it can the bill or it can charge its customers, but that the point is, is the market is competitive. At the same time, FedEx, DHL, uh, UPS, all can, U.S. Postal Service all can deliver at the same time to the same house without affecting the deliveries to the adjacent houses. And so it is not true that that's just a trivial thing. It's, a, it's not trivial at all because prioritization in the existing fixed capacity network, by definition, must degrade The service to the next door neighbor. It has to, because otherwise no one would pay for the prioritization. If it doesn't actually leave frog above and degrade the others, then it doesn't. Now, that's why I rely on the new capacity idea. If they deploy new capacity and sell it off, that's fine, because it doesn't affect the other users. They're already doing this with the the end around. He mentioned Google. Yeah, Google pays for that. That's great. And they should be allowed to pay for that. I have no problem with that. But this
2: obfuscates the issue. First, even if you're operating within the system, like the public internet, drawing a line down the highway, and separating certain traffic from others does not necessarily degrade the experience. If you pull some traffic off, it sometimes, you know, the greenway may may make things faster for Route 7 going out to Leesburg. But that's not what we're talking about here, okay? We're not talking about the experience on on the public Internet. We're talking about virtual private networks, different networks that bypass the public Internet, just the way Google bypasses the public Internet. And what, the, what Google is saying and what the Amazons are saying is if you guys build a private, a virtual private network, and, and you know, like, which is what companies like Citibank have going for them. You know, they, they have certain kinds of networks. They exchange their traffic. They don't conduct their financial operations over the public Internet. And when we put in a big broadband pipe in someone's home, all of a sudden, those kinds of services are services that Citibank can do directly with the consumer. That's great. Now the consumer can get a level and quality of service. Citibank can deliver those things over a bigger last mile, but it has to get around the rest of the Internet. And what these guys are saying is if when, you, when, you, when you do that, when you enable those kinds of new services and you do end-to-end management and, and you do something that's different than, than on the public Internet, You've you got to put it under a tariff so we can get it, too. And we're saying, well, look, you know, that's a commercial deal. We'll do a commercial deal with you. And until, and, and until there's a problem that's manifest, you know, let's not have any rule that says regulators get to set the rates of everything.
1: Well, that's certainly not what I said. We'll but do closing the comments with Paul. the diagrams and do not say that. The diagrams talk about new capacity not within the existing network. And if, we're talk- if we don't want to apply net neutrality to private networks, no one's claiming that.
3: Um, I, I get the last word. Um, the answer is I think that Paul's alternative is attractive but infeasible. I mean, networks can't, the reality is that network management makes it very difficult to segregate in that way. And on a going basis, even if you invest in that, you, you're constantly reinvesting. And so there's always an impact in, this, in how you develop things. Um, Paul keeps saying that we should in, in promote competition. I agree. The interesting dispute is here is how do we do that? And one of the problems is, is uh, I think the lesson is the post brand X experience. When uh, content providers and equipment providers, people who provide secondary services, were faced with not having access to the existing network anymore, Uh, they became the natural strategic partners for the people who are trying to build out new networks. The flip side, mandating access to the network exists today, rescues them from having to make those capital investments, which are extremely risky and extremely difficult to do. Uh, From a policy standpoint, that's bad. And so I think the the difference of opinion is not the goals, but the question is, uh, how feasible is this entry? How long is it going to take? How do the long-term dynamic efficiency gains trade off against the short-run static efficiency losses? And this is why the welfare calculus can be complicated. If you told us, yeah, it could happen, but it'll take 20 years, we have a different problem than if it takes two. And so we have this really difficult, factual-intensive situation. But I think that there's a really solid case to say that we're in a world where new networks are possible and we should be doing, that should be the question. And that's not today, first and foremost. But second, I think there's a good argument that my belief is that denying network neutrality is the best way to promote that kind of investment and get the new network competition that Paul wants so badly.
0: I, I wish we could continue. This is a great discussion. Um, we'll take a five minute break, and then the next panel will be here. Thank you all very much.